0: G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Dryborough, And this is a lot to talk about. All right, Amy Ruffle, how are you?
1: I am uh, (laughs) a little nervous, I'll be honest. We are having a myriad of technical difficulties, but we will get there and it will make this all the better.
0: It's a season for tech difficulty because it feels like the last couple of pods I've had, technology has been against me, but I'm going to mm-hmm. remain optimistic because I'd like to think I'm an optimist. So it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to have you here.
1: Likewise, it is a pleasure to be here and I appreciate your patience while we're trying to figure this out.
0: No, my pleasure. It's, it's striking to me that you're one of these people that could almost be described as a triple threat. You're comedically brilliant. You are an incredible actor. You're also a musician. There's a few things happening in your life, but they, from the outside perspective, at least for the last couple of years, seem to be in the entertainment space. Now, I know there's more to your life than that, and I'm sure we'll get into it today. But the first question I want to ask you is if you could look at where you are in your current reality, does it surprise you that you've had the success that you're now experiencing?
1: Uh, Totally. (laughs) I I guess it also depends how you describe success, which I feel like is something we'll probably get into um, because that's something that does change. um, And yeah, it's certainly like success to me has become very flexible. So I think it does surprise me where I'm at career wise, but that also isn't all I'm marking success by.
0: Mm, It's interesting. So you know, for me, if I look from the outside in the well-worn path of an Australian actor seems to play maybe almost, or is almost depicted in the same way for a lot of people. And that often looks like you go to some form of acting school in Australia. You know, NIDA is the one that comes to mind because he used to drive past it quite a bit as a kid. You know, Mm -hmm. you go to NIDA, you then get some small roles. Those small roles lead to more consistent roles. And quite often, that's a show like Neighbours or something like that, which is, being on Australian TV for a long time. And then there's a point in your career in which you flock to LA or one of those spaces. Does that sound similar? Obviously a very shallow description of, but does it sound similar to what you experienced or has your path been very different to that?
1: No, I think that's definitely sort of, there's no, um, you know, textbook way to go about a career in entertainment. And yet there sort of is a textbook way uh, in terms of like the Australian trajectory of like, do some sort of study. Um, I didn't go to a three-year school like a NIDA, um, and I have a lot of thoughts about um, prolonged, uh, I guess, acting education, because I really think it's like an innate thing just sort of like you can paint or you can't, or you can sing or you can't. I really think you can like tell story through acting or you can't, you can refine certain things, but sometimes if you do that too much, it sort of takes away your um, interesting POV and your um, the only thing you really have to offer, which is your view of the world. Um, So yeah, sometimes I think that we can sort of train that out of people and um, have these really good, like little robot actors, but um, ultimately, you know, your specific viewpoint is, is your point of difference. Anyway, I'm getting off the track. Um, but yes, I, I went to just a one year musical theater course, had a great time, started getting roles here. And then, like you said, flocked to America, because I think that's what we think we have to do. Um, and whether that's true, or it's just almost exploring that from the perspective of getting it out of your mind of like, what is america is it much different to australia you sort of have to do it just to try and see um and get it out of your system in a way uh uh, but there is more opportunity there so yeah you're right there is um kind of a, a pathway to it i i don't know that that's the only one but it is the most regular one
0: so how did you find yourself on this path because you know, quite often you see people who are in showbiz, it's, it's no surprise to a lot of people around them. They were either hyper energetic. They were the kind of human being who, to be honest, it's probably a surprise to some people in my life that I'm not in showbiz because I was a kid <laughs> who wanted to talk to everyone and wanted to perform for people and make people laugh and make people smile. It was very much a part of who I was as a kid. So it's no surprise right. that I'm chatty. But for you, like there are so many talents there. Were these talents that you exercised consistently as a kid?
1: Definitely not. I um I was a very sporty kid, so that was sort of where my life was. Um, I did springboard diving, so I was training 10 times a week, you know, water-soaked, little chlorine baby. Um, but it was really funny. I was at my parents' house just this week clearing out old tubs of, um, you know, all of my school stuff, um, as they're trying to downsize their house and get rid of all of my brother and my um, belongings that we've left unattended for over a decade now. Um, But found some old diaries, which I didn't even remember that I used to keep a diary. Um, Horrific to read what 13 year old I thought was (laughs) interesting. But in that, um, there was some comments where it was like, I'm I'm doing all this diving, but like, I'd really like to try acting one day. And it was just so wild to me to read that even when I was in like the thick of a very like sport-based elite training regime, I had this dream of obviously wanting to be an actor, not really getting what it was probably at that time in my life, but the seed was there, but I just certainly didn't have the time to um, exercise it until I got a bit older.
0: Was that seed and that desire to, to want to be in the space of acting, was that a, a way of escaping diving? Like was diving not serving you anymore? Or was that genuine passion and interest for a field that seemed to be quite desirable from the outside?
1: That's a great question. Um, I wonder how much at the age of like 13, 14, you know is truly genuine. It seems like such a time um, rife with trying to fit in and um, I think a lot of people at that age probably think being an actor seems really cool and interesting. Uh, and maybe at that time it is for less um, uh, altruistic intense it would be maybe like to be famous or to have people love you or something like that it seems very glamorous um as opposed to diving which i felt pretty you know um i less exciting and um the antithesis of a creative endeavor but i did uh, diving was not serving me so maybe low-key it was as a way of like maybe that could be my way out um but i think i've always really loved the way that acting um connects people and to me it's like it's all about like storytelling and um yeah like being able to have empathy for other people's stories and experiences that's my role as an actor to try and understand a character um, but i don't think that was probably going on at 13.
0: <laughs> so i find this really interesting and that, and probably what flagged that question or that thought for me is I recently read and listened to some people talk about a study in which a a large number, in fact, quite a, a significant number of kids in their teenage years or even early years, I think primary school years, were surveyed about what they desire in life. And there was a bunch of things that they were surveyed on and they sort of almost ranked them in order of importance. And I believe that years and years ago, like I'm talking a few decades ago, the results for this test Spat out something along the lines of people wanted to belong to a community. They wanted to create families. They wanted to create essentially a community in which they felt as though they had a place. And they found that after recent surveys and studies tested this same theory in a very different society and time, that the thing that kids wanted more than anything was to be famous, to be known. And I find this really interesting because that's kind of the world we live in, right? The world where, you know, the average Joe or the average Jolene could potentially be significant because of their social media account or, you know, could live a life in which there maybe isn't too much meaning to it, but there's a lot of attention on it. And I find it really interesting because I think we're all human and we all have these innate desires to be loved. To be seen as significant, to feel a part of something, or to have people who look to us and, and admire us. There's something human about that. But it's also something that can be quite destructive.
1: Yeah, I mean that that is such a bummer that the the results are those fundamental human things of wanting connection, wanting to sort of have a role in your tribe, a way that you're contributing, and that everybody has that skill set that um gives them i guess like meaning and purpose and now what people are desiring is sort of the polar opposite of that because fame to me is the absolute worst part of my job i hate that it's associated with um acting in any way because it um it like takes your anonymity away and all of those things and tends to have impact on the people around you but more than anything a life of that can be really isolating you often are like traveling and have to um, you know move to place to place so it can be hard to establish a community and things like that so when you hear kids want to be famous it's like ah if you want to be an actor that's one thing it's sort of you know um, a hard enough career but the desire to the just the fame side of it you're like that's you're always going to be wanting more because it's always it's out of your control and once you get a little bit you need more and i just like i think that validation that people are looking for from someone else it is trying to feel like love and fill something up but ultimately it feels so yeah like out of your own reach
0: i couldn't agree more so what do you think that 13 year old amy wanted
1: um I mean, probably that I think I've I've definitely uh, had a lot of like that insecurity. And um, I guess the sad part is, I think fame makes you think that, or it sort of guarantees that people will love and adore you, right? You're always going to have like fans, (laughs) whereas uh, it's way more scary to take that away. And then I guess the risk of will people love you for you. And I've had a really good opportunity to have um I guess like notoriety at an early age and have that and then not work in that space and I guess like have less attention and fame and then get to see if people will still stick around for just the regular version but I think yeah as a 13 year old I I didn't feel like people maybe liked me and so the idea that I would have this mass adoration is totally appealing
0: I'm, I'm really curious as to whether this resonates with you. So I'm going to read you something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, it was a quote that come from a friend of mine, Gemma Spegg's podcast. She's got a podcast called The Psychology of Your 20s. It's quite a, a successful show and she's mm-hmm. a a trained psychologist. And she speaks about issues that seem to be relatable or relevant to us in our 20s and even like 30s, younger than that, 40s, like it's relevant to all of us, but you know, she's Mm -hmm. in her 20s. And this quote, the world is divided by the people who are privileged by being ordinary and those of us who are damned by our desire to be remarkable. (laughs) That really hit me for a six because, and it, it almost feels shameful. And like, there's a fear of judgment when I admit this, but there is a certain part of me that wants to be like the reason I do what I do with the podcast and the reason I get on stage and speak is because I want to help people. Like a big part of my purpose is to uplift and inspire hope in people through story. And so there's a huge desire to do that. And for me, this idea of being remarkable and being highly successful at something that is less ordinary is a huge part of my wiring. And sometimes you know, you feel doomed by that desire because things aren't going the way you planned. And it's really hard to, to settle for something that seems a little bit more um, ordinary. Not that there's anything wrong with ordinary because some people love consistency of a nine to five and love to do their job without any attention on them at all. I have to admit, I'm likely not one of those people or at least not at this stage of my life anyways. I find that actually really challenging and really really detrimental to my mm-hmm. mindset. I wonder how you feel about that.
1: Yeah, it uh, it totally resonates with that, um, and it feels, I guess, like shame is maybe an interesting word. Even though I really try not to buy into guilt and shame too much, because it is sort of a unproductive emotion, but you feel ridiculous for, I guess. Um, caring or thinking that that is a a valid problem and concern in your life, like, oh, uh, doomed by my own high expectations, given that's a place of privilege to be able to pursue those. Um, And, you know, I can't, we can't have this conversation without recognizing like what's going on in the world right now and true concerns. Mm. However, putting all that aside to have this conversation, because I do think there are people that um, also sort of will resonate with this, that yeah, it is uh i get frustrated by having high expectations because i think my life could probably be a lot simpler and happier and healthier if i you know craved that consistency and things like that rather than having this um sort of drive and desire to be doing things that are out of the ordinary and be always like striving for like you said that like remarkable next thing which maybe comes like being an elite athlete as a kid it's just ingrained in me to have to like achieve and strive um, you know, like work hard for an outcome. Which I
0: don't think is a bad thing at all. And that's, I see the positive in both sides of it. Like if I was to, if I was to ask myself the question and I've done this at stages this year, like what does my dream life look like? On one hand, there is this amazing and incredibly exciting picture of waking up on a Saturday morning next to my partner, sofa, and a couple of kitties burst through the door, and jump into bed with us and have our morning coffee with us. And then we're off to watch them play sport for the day. Nothing excites me more than that image. But at the same time, I love the idea that they see dad go to work on Monday and his work is behind a microphone or on a stage helping people at a mass level. And it's hard to imagine having mass impact, especially in a very forward-facing industry without a lot of people knowing who you are. Mm. You know, Yeah. How- and I think
1: it's like, a balance, right? A balance of that home life and the work life. And that's the hard line to um, find and navigate is not going one way or the other too far.
0: And that's the question I want to ask you is how have you (laughs) found that balance?
1: Well, it's a constant process. (laughs) Let's say that. (laughs) Sometimes I'm getting it right and sometimes I'm not. Um, Certainly didn't get it right for a very long time um, to the detriment of my health and well-being. But um, I think, yeah, definitely in my mid-20s, I had to take a minute and sort of reprioritize things back to sort of what we were saying about, I guess, definitions of success and um, values in life and figure out what that balance is that, my, I guess, uh, totally like blind focus on just career maybe wasn't serving the whole picture of life. So like what, um, what can you adjust to make that balance better?
0: So it's really interesting that you say this, cause I think we all have to experience that, what you'd almost call the, the tipping point at one stage where you have achieved what you thought you wanted to, or somewhat you're in that space at least, or on that trajectory, but it. It forces you to introspect. It forces you to reflect on what that's given you, what challenges have come as a product of that, and actually whether you're on the, the correct path or maybe you need to adjust slightly. Talk to me, though, about the first few years of your career. Like you alluded to going to musical theatre school for a year. I think one of the, the really exciting and interesting things for me was to see a recent clip which was you on thank god you're here which is very much improv comedy a very fun light show but be able to actually showcase your voice Mm. in one of those scenes and one of those sets and that's probably something that not a lot of people who have just experienced you through australian tv know about you so talking about the early years of the career and sort of what they set up
1: well i I, yeah i I went into musical theater i think Maybe that felt like a more natural pathway given at school you would do a musical. Like at school, you're not making a TV show. So I really didn't have any idea how to make that possible. Whereas I'd done a musical before and um, that felt accessible. And like you said, like singing is a big part of my life. Um, music has always been like, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a higher power. It definitely is my way of like feeling, emoting, um, connecting with um, that sort of different level of experience. So the idea that uh, in a musical you get to do that, like the character, you know, the basis of it should be like, uh, the character feels so much they no longer can speak, they must sing. And I just love the ability to like really hit that next level of like emotional communication. So musical theater is so interesting to me. I'm not good enough at it, which is why I've not done it. Um, you said triple threat at the start, and I shuddered because the traditional um term for triple threat is you know, singer, dancer, actor, and I can't dance to save myself. Um, so I could never sort of do that, but it was through musical theater that. We had like a film and television component and then i was like oh hang on you know this is really interesting it's sort of the same thing that i like about musicals the telling stories finding a character connecting but it's just like bringing it in a little bit closer um and i don't think i really had any grand plan of attack rather than just there's so few jobs in australia audition for every single thing possible in the hope um that one of them goes your way because people are always like oh you know are you a comedic actor or a dramatic actor and I'm like um whatever you'll pay me to be (laughs) you know I don't feel like that I'm in a position to be that picky obviously comedy I love so much so if it goes that way great but also like it's such a funny thing to ask because I don't think a role is ever comedic or dramatic and you're referencing that thank god clip like in the one where I'm singing like I'm not trying to be funny or whatever i'm truly like very dramatically connected to that role so i think in any job you have all like both of those things um but yeah i guess it was more good fortune than any grand plan of just audition and then was lucky enough that one finally went my way but that was certainly after you know a good year of them not going my way
0: before we get on to the one that went your way i'd be interested to hear what the people around you were saying at this time because you mentioned it there, like there is not a lot of work in Australia. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think everybody, and I think it's, it's almost safe to assume that everybody at some stage in their early adulthood has some sort of pipe dream that they talk about, but often people yeah. will shut them down for it. And unfortunately, that dream being shut down by the opinions of people around them or by maybe the fear that they can't bring that dream to fruition is the end of the dream the end of that being ever a potential reality. And I'm I'm certain that there would be at least one person in your life or a few people in your life who believed in you, but I'm almost certain that there'd be a few people who kind of tried to warn you away from this life.
1: Honestly, not really. I think I, I'm so fortunate. My family are just absolute legends and rock stars. They have always supported me. Um, I think I got like a good education under my belt first. I was very diligent in in school and wanted. I didn't do any like drama subjects or anything like that. I wanted to get like a good foundation and score so that no matter what, I had like a great, you know, plan B or fallback, whatever you want to call it, to be able to study pretty much anything. Um, And I guess the wait for that first job wasn't too long. Um, Perhaps if I didn't work for an extended period of time, there might've been like a knock on the door that was like, all right, (laughs) what are we doing? But there was enough um, little tidbits of, I guess, um, validation or evidence that success could be possible coming that um, it kept, you know, the hyenas at bay around me, (laughs) they stayed supportive. And I would say it's, you know, in the last maybe five years where I've had probably more um, questions about my own career, that they've been the ones that are like, you are good at this you know keep going even when i've been like maybe i should you know try something else so i i i luckily have not um really encountered that other than the old internal voice
0: oh and we can all speak to the internal voice i'm sure we'll get to that at one point but what was that first gig
1: um so the first like major role that sort of made me move home move out of home and um uh, really was a, the biggest one was a show called or Mermaids, which was for um, Channel 10 and Netflix. So I moved to Queensland for that and it was a seven month shoot for each season. Um, so in terms of Australian TV, truly unheard of and sort of set, sets you up. If that's your first job, it's a very false impression of what most work in television is gonna be like. But um, it was so amazing for seven months to know what I was doing and to be able to do something creative. Uh, It was also a crazy job because it's very physical, shooting in the water. Um, So it was a, um, you know, I guess like baptism of fire in terms of what the job could entail, um, but has set me up with an incredible foundation of if I could do that job, everything has been so easy since.
0: How old were you at that point?
1: Um, I think 19, maybe 20
0: that's still like I think about myself at 1920 and there were still so many questions around who I was as a human being what I wanted from my life what I'm actually good at like what are my skills and talents at this point what do I have to offer there's so many questions around forming our identity at that early age of adulthood that come Mm -hmm. into question and can be challenged by the experiences we have I'd be interested to hear what your experience was like growing up at that time, whilst also having this really exciting job that puts you in front of a lot of eyeballs, you know, over the course of a season on, on Netflix and channel 10. Like, how did you, did you find that experience?
1: Yeah. Uh, very challenging. <laughs> uh, yeah, like you said at 19 or 20 you've got absolutely no idea and even if you think you've got an idea, you know, me sitting here at 31 I'm like that person was in the nicest way a complete idiot. Uh, <laughs> but moving out of home, I'd, like that's a big enough thing in itself and I think even take the job out of it I'm grateful that at a young age I was forced to have that independence. I think like that is very traditional in the way American children grow up, um but maybe not so much here and so in just that sense learning to take care of yourself was a huge part of it um but yeah i think like the shoot was a really growing experience and then like you said the i guess um the show airing and the um notoriety side of it was a whole other thing like i i would be happy if the show never came out and no one ever saw it uh and i felt the same uh don't tell anyone about thank god because That's so external from my experience, like the joy I get from anything like that is doing it on the day, getting to play around with my friends and wear silly costumes. I don't, it doesn't need to ever, like I don't need to ever see an episode, uh, nor do I need people to, um, I guess, like have that weird relationship or recognition with me. I understand it's a part of the job, it's just the least interesting and least desirable part of it for me. Um, So I think that was a shock to get used to that being a part of it, because up until then, anytime I've acted it was like just for me and for fun so then all of a sudden you're like oh there's another side and there's I guess a consequence of it which again like having that can add a lot to your life you get afforded a lot of wonderful opportunities when you're someone in the public eye but it also means that people get very involved in your life and I don't think there's any way to prepare for that it's just sort of once it happens trying to find your relationship to it um that's not going to derail your day
0: of course, now I must apologize. I've never watched an episode of Mako Mermaids.
1: <laughs> what? That's it. I'm out. <laughs> but
0: I, no, I that's to good. Ask.
1: Probably was never for you.
0: <laughs> yeah. That, so what's the demographic of viewers?
1: Well, well, you'd think it was children, uh, but my Instagram messages would indicate otherwise. Okay. Uh Definitely. Yeah. Intended for children's television. But, um, the best one I ever got was, um, like I got a written mail from a like Texas penitentiary to an address in Queensland that like, not even my family, even like my brother wouldn't have known that address. Cause I just lived there temporarily for like six months. Right. So I was like, how does this man in a jail in Texas know where I live? <laughs>
0: That's, that's wild. That is yeah. wild. Um, Cause I'm really curious as to, you know, we, so let's say in Australia, mm-hmm. you grow up in Australia and as a young man, I idolized rugby league and rugby league players. And like my dream was to be the next Brad Fittler. And thankfully in my own life, I had incredible parents as role models and, you know, my major idol and the man I looked up to was my dad. And that's who I wanted to mirror myself often, you know, for me, I'm lucky. It was a brilliant example of what it means to be a man, but I wonder that, you know, for a lot of footballers and I've got a few mates who play football professionally, they often speak of the fact that you at a very young age, when you're still trying to figure yourself out, almost get thrown into the deep end as a role model for children. And I wonder for you, was there any weight of expectation to be some sort of person outside of the show for the children and the young girls that watch?
1: I think that I think that only is like exacerbated now with social media, right? Like I do feel that way in terms of wanting to use that platform I've been given for something decent. <laughs> um, and I think... On the show i did feel it in the way that we were older than our characters and i found it quite difficult playing someone so young that people would be looking up to me and being like well why don't i look like that at that age and you know there was a um a guy on the show playing a merman, a and he was a 25 year old like buff dude playing a 15 year old kid and you're like ah are we setting like really challenging expectations that kids are not going to be able to meet so i did feel really conscious about that and like yeah, I think, I think about it a lot in terms of like body shapes and things that we see on screen and how they tend to be of one specific type. Uh, And I don't think that's like right or representative. Um, So I do think about that a lot. And I think the only way to kind of combat it is by now people do have access to you via the internet. So what are you putting out there? And um, what's going on your social media? That's like the only way to to control the messaging but i will say like when you're talking about football players and them being role models we disproportionately put that expectation on people that haven't asked for it and probably aren't equipped for it like the people we raise up put on these um, pedestals and make our heroes and role models yes you can think that they are that way as an athlete but i think it's so unfair that we expect again, mostly like 18 to 21-year-olds to be these perfect people that make the good decisions all the time. You think of these like athletes and stuff, they're kids, they're going to make mistakes and then they get absolutely hounded for behaving like most of us probably did in that time bracket. And so I think like we have a big responsibility the media does for sure they're the absolute worst but us as like i guess consumers of content and people need to do better at remembering that like that is just a person that someone's child someone's brother that like they're not infallible
0: i couldn't agree more and i often think the media who most of the people especially in rugby league who write write about the game itself and the personalities in it somewhat forget that 20 years ago they were that age too and likely had a lot of fuck-ups.
1: <laughs> totally. It's,
0: it's like, let's let's not forget where you came from because we all experience that part of our life differently and it's a lot of pressure to put on someone at that age. You spoke before about that, almost that feeling, that need, that part of the the well-worn path is to fly out of Oz and land in, you know, the big smoke, which for entertainers is LA. What was that experience like? And was it an opportunity that called you over there or was it just the desire to explore it?
1: Yeah, I think like a bit of both. Um, It felt like the right time in my career to do that coming off, you know, these seasons of a Netflix show, which was, you know, getting global exposure. And so um, there were agents that wanted to meet with me and my Australian team uh, wanted me to meet with them. Uh, So it felt like absolutely the right thing to do at that time um I think too your brain does think like what if uh when you're in Australia you're thinking like what's going on over there and you do need to sort of figure that out for yourself because I think going there the work opportunity of course there's more um but it makes you confront that question of like is work everything that I want my life to be am I willing to pack up my world and move to the other side of um you know, the world uh, and start again and like not have my support system, my community, my friends and go after this like very solo pursuit at the cost of everything else that I've built in my life. Um, And there's a time to do that, which I think is, you know, for me was in my early 20s and it felt good and right to do that. But I think if I ask myself that question now, I wouldn't be willing to compromise on those same things again.
0: So you mentioned there, you know, to leave, the one thing that you mentioned leaving was like your support system and the people you love and the people you have around you. I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to whether you found, because it sounds like you found that experience difficult, was the difficulty in moving away from the people you love or was it not having them there to support you through a, a form of challenge or hardship that you experienced whilst there?
1: probably both um and I will say I found moving home to Australia more difficult because by the time I did my time in LA I'd been there for you know a six-year period and I'd um, made myself very at home there and um, figured that out and I think it's the the constant chopping and changing which is harder not necessarily moving but if you are constantly moving then that becomes really difficult um but I certainly did miss my family and both of my parents in that time um have like developed, they've got, they live with disability now. And so that's something that factors into my decision-making because I no longer want to be on the other side of the world. Um, but at the same time, yeah, when things were tough over there, if you don't have home to go like somewhere to go and, you know, have a coffee and talk about the stressor or, um, do things like that, it does make anything that you're going through just like a little bit more challenging.
0: I'm interested to hear like for you was that a positive experience like did you come away from 6 years because 6 years is a long time to spend anywhere did you come mm-hmm. away from that and and go that was well worth it obviously regrets an interesting conversation because often you learn something from an experience regardless but i'd i'd just be interested to hear like if you had your time over again which is very much a hypothetical situation we can't gift you that would you would you fly away or would you stay at home
1: no i would do it uh- and a thousand times it was the best thing that i've ever done uh well no i'll take that back it was a good thing that i did i don't think it's the best thing i've ever done um but it certainly uh professionally creatively forced me to grow so much um i don't think i would be where i am today as a comedian without having what i did over there the training and stage time and exposure i got you cannot get in australia we just do not have the i guess like comedy community and foundation Um, in improv stand up Australia's huge and amazing for but not really for improv Um, so I I certainly do not regret that at all I regret how I left in the sense that it was because of COVID and not on my own terms Um, I you know was in the middle of working on something so I would have loved to be able to see that to its end but um, the decision to go I think was um, exactly what I needed to do at that time and yeah wouldn't change it Sure, there was moments of it that are hard, but I think I would have hard moments being in my mid-20s in this industry in Australia. So I don't think it would be any different.
0: Comedy is such an interesting conversation because for the longest time, if you ask me, what do you think about funny people? How do funny people become funny? I would have said that it's almost intrinsic. Like it's a part of who they, they are forever. Like we all know the class clowns that we grew up with. I'd like to think I was one of them. I probably wasn't that funny. <laughs> we all think we're funnier <laughs> than we are. Um, but I heard, I heard Jimmy Carr on Joe Rogan's pod and he was talking about he would love to create some sort of course for people to become funny. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. He's implying that this is something that you can learn and he was mm-hmm. saying that he doesn't think the course would be about putting people on stage, but rather teaching them somewhat of the, the foundation of humor and how that can be impactful in anything they do. And I think that humor sheds light on hardship. I think humor brings us through challenging times. And I think humor is, a, is an absolute skill. And I'd be interested to hear whether you found yourself falling into the comedy space and finding it quite natural, or whether it was something you felt like you had to learn?
1: No, I I, I would like to think a, a bit like what I was saying with acting, that it's something that's like in your bones. Certainly there are like, um, I guess, techniques or styles that you can refine like anything. And um, there is structure to stuff, you know, set up and a punchline and, you know, or an improv show has sort of like a set format. But within that, you've got to have funny in your bones you're you either do or you don't and I think it's a lot about um confidence and connection like I perform with a group of people and the more you know each other the funnier you can be because it's about having that relationship and that trust there um but I, I would love to go to this class to see what they think uh you know what what is a comedy class like that sounds so funny to me the idea of someone teaching people to be funny so I want to do the class uh, for that purpose <laughs>
0: I think it would be a very interesting setting. And to be fair, right? if Jimmy Carr's running it, I'm all around it. I'm all around it. I also it. just
1: think that would attract some of the worst people. That, like, yeah, I believe I can learn to be funny, but I do not want to be in a room with those people.
0: It, it'd almost be more hilarious to watch the efforts.
1: Oh my gosh, give me a double, you know, the mirrors that they have in a police station? Put me behind yep. that glass and let me watch that class. Please and thank you.
0: <laughs> I love it. So this is kind of a a second part or second stage to the interview we've just had a brief intermission um for tech oh i'm
1: glad that you you um brought it up i was gonna just pretend that i was gonna do like a little laugh and then just come back as if we were (laughs) blending it seamlessly
0: we have to be honest that tech has not been on our side today we said it at the the front end Uh, we'll say it at the back end however um we're just speaking about comedy and that Mm. transition that ultimately led you back home to australia the last few years we've been able to see you, I guess, in, in a few different ways. It looks like you've been doing a bunch of different stuff. What have some of those projects look like? We touched on, thank God you're here, which is an Australian tradition, um, which is so exciting. But w- what's the last couple of years been like for you?
1: Um, certainly the tail end of the last couple of years has been in a work sense um, more fruitful. Um, I wouldn't recommend moving and then trying to um you know foster a career in live comedy during a pandemic turns out that's a bad time to do it so the first um couple of years were pretty rough um in 2020 I still was working for for a show in America so I would um, work remotely from my parents' basement at, um, you know, there would be a Friday night show. So it was like Saturday morning for me. And then, you know, close the laptop at 1 p.m., feeling absolutely disjointed because, you know, just done this crazy hyped evening show in America and then sort of, you know, walked my five-kilometer radius, as was 2020. Um, (laughs) But at the end of that year, it sort of looked like, you know, borders weren't opening. I wasn't going to be able to get back to the States um, anytime soon. And the stuff with mum and dad was sort of um, really coming to the forefront so I sort of was like okay you know what would a life look like um, staying in Australia because I sort of just had planned well I initially was like I'll come home for three to four weeks and then the pandemic will be over and I'll go back to America which um, you know didn't work out quite to plan Um, but yeah so then 2021 and 2022 were um, I guess a bit messy trying to figure out how to make that work here and so much of comedy is about your community and you know working with people that you know and love um and i hadn't lived in melbourne since i was 19 when i moved for that um acting job so it had been a decade so i didn't have that community and foundation here so it was sort of starting from scratch and um i can basically chart out the little um like little pieces of kindness and um generosity that individuals showed me that led to how I ended up you know getting to perform live comedy and doing thank god you're here that it just was people um yeah going above and beyond me asking questions and asking for help and then people responding with just um open arms and willingness to support me um that over yeah three years managers have sort of managed to now have what I feel is like a great comedy community but not just for the work side for the Friendships and belonging side, you know. I feel like I have my place here now and my people now. Which the jobs are incredible. I'm obsessed with them. Don't get me wrong, but that other side of it is what you know. In 2020, I felt like I was lacking, just not having a community.
0: It's really interesting you just spoke there about asking people for help and experiencing that kindness. I found it really interesting that I I spoke at a school the start of this week, a school that I've spoken at before but to a group of their year 12 students. In fact, it was their whole year 12 group, probably about a hundred kids. And at the end, I spoke for an hour and I stayed around for an hour afterwards and all the kids just come and ask questions and we were chatting and just speaking about a bunch of different things. And one of the lads asked me a question that I found really interesting. He said, has anyone ever said no to coming on the podcast? And I found it quite funny because in fact, hundreds, maybe thousands of people have said no or haven't responded because that's the nature of trying to build something from the ground up is you have to pitch yourself and you have to get very comfortable putting yourself out there and very comfortable receiving a no because it doesn't grow without some sort of intent to reach people that are of profile or have incredible stories that maybe just aren't uncomfortable sharing them or maybe just don't mm-hmm. have the time for you at this stage because it's not you know, it's not a valuable enough experience to be in front of your audience. That's a huge part of growing something. It's a huge part of trying something. And I found it really interesting that in a world in which we have seen society move towards this, you know, we spoke about it before with reality TV and things like social media, people who can be somewhat unassuming or don't intend it can sort of find stardom and find success in the limelight through, Maybe just putting out a video on a social media platform like TikTok and all of a sudden they're a hit. And it sensationalized this idea that everyone can be successful for any reason. And it's actually kind of like it's, I guess it misleads people to think that everything is easy or that success is easy. The truth is it's not. I'd be interested to hear what it felt like for you to have to pitch yourself. Was that challenging to ask for help?
1: Of course. Yeah, I think it's really hard to ask for help. And um, is it It can be like a humbling experience to be like, I'm in a position where I um, I need to ask for help. And I think for me, there was a bit to get through in that sense, because I felt like I had worked really hard in America and built up the network that I needed to and like, I guess, the resume that I needed to to get the job that i wanted to do and to be getting the performance opportunities i felt like you know i'd done my time done the hustle and then was sort of getting into that period where you're rewarded for that and get to then be working in the way that you want to so then coming back to australia and feeling like you were back to square one um yeah is like is frustrating and humbling and um can be exhausting too because you're like well i've done i've already done that i don't want to have to sort of do the free jobs and all of those things again you're getting to a point in your life where it's fun to Um, I guess, do that and be doing the internships and things like that when you're younger. But the older you get, the more you are sort of craving a bit more, I guess, like stability and um, even like financial side like that, that becomes more of a reality. So I think, um, yeah, you can get in your own head about that or maybe back to like shame and things like that, being feeling maybe ashamed that you need to ask for help. But where I ultimately land is like getting a no doesn't isn't worse than not asking. The only possible thing is that you could also get a yes. Like I haven't lost if I get a no, but I potentially can gain if I get a yes. And so I always think as long as you're being reasonable (laughs) with what you ask, and uh, if you don't hear or get a no, you don't keep pestering someone. I think asking is always a wonderful and okay thing. And like, if when I get stuff like that, I love it. All I want to do is like, try and help someone the way that I've been helped too. like, you're only stronger by the people around you. So I think, yeah, like a no is not something to fear. It's just a pathway to another possible. Yes.
0: I'd be interested to hear whether any of the no's you received in that period encouraged some form of growth or almost like a step up in approach when pitching yourself the next time.
1: Yeah, probably. Like you learn maybe better ways to do it. But I think you just, you become more resilient. And <laughs> I'll be honest, I feel like you don't often get a no, you just don't hear, right? <laughs> like <laughs> no's are actually quite rare. You just, you'll get radio silence or a yes. So I think I'm pretty good at once I've sent something, I never think about it again. And then you know, I'll get an email and be like, wait, what is this? oh my gosh, I can't like I'd forgotten I'd done that. So um, I think it just t- teaches you to be resilient. And I would encourage people to take the, I guess, personalness out of it, because a lot of people are busy. And if they don't get back to you, I don't think it's ill intent. It's just they like, they don't have the capacity for it right now, um, or something like that. So again, like, it's not something to fear, you only have stuff to gain by sort of reaching out and asking for help.
0: Couldn't agree more. And I I often think that I'm so glad, like when you, when you ask, or when you reach out, obviously the intention or the hope is that you get the yes. But I often at times look back on the last three and a half years that I've been doing this. And, and I feel glad that some no's come at that time because I think it, it encouraged me to ask myself the question, why am I doing this? Do I want to be doing this? Because sometimes if it's easy you don't know whether it really means something to you. Like, I think if I had started, like when I started the podcast in 2020, I thought it would be just a grand success overnight. Like there's so much blind self-belief within me that I just thought- Good on you. (laughs) I just thought naturally in the space of a couple of months, me and Rogan would be going toe to toe for the top show, which (laughs) which is hilarious, right? Just a naive 24 year old and still a bit of a naive 27 year old who believes he can do anything, which I love. That's one of the things I love about myself. However, being being forced to like sit down and check reality and go, oh, well, actually I've been doing this for three and a half years and it's nowhere near where I want it to be. And it's growing and it's helping people and it's valuable to a lot of people, but it's not at the point I thought it would be, but actually I still love it. In fact, I love it more than I've ever loved it. So there's a whole lot of value in this, not just for other people, but for me personally. Whereas I, I often question if I had struck gold after five episodes and this was something ginormous, and it paid my bills and it was an easy option. It made so much sense, not just from a passion or purpose standpoint to sit in front of the mic, but financially it made so much sense to get down in front of the mic and do an app. Then maybe I wouldn't be forced to question whether this is something that is really special and important to me. But after three and a half years of struggling to keep this alive and having to find ways to keep myself afloat, I can genuinely say I do this because I love it, because it means something to me. And I Mm -hmm. believe that that's a really valuable lesson.
1: Oh my gosh, there's so much merit in that because you're not like, I, I guess, blinded by um a secondary outcome or something out of your hands that's like well maybe that's why i'm doing it you know that it's like you like boots on the ground the conversations that's the stuff that resonates with you and that's such a gift to know that
0: 100 percent, it is and it speaks to this idea of purpose which is really important to me and how purpose gives us fulfillment gives us meaning it affords us a real gift and and an appreciation for life. And if you don't mind, I'd like to go a little personally into that for you because whilst I'm stunned by everything that you've done in your career, you've alluded to a couple of times now your parents and the fact that they're now facing challenges of their own and you know, being their daughter, it's really unique when you are a, a child of two incredible people that you have a lot of love for and you transition from being just their child, to now something else to them. And for me, I'm really proud that I get to say, whilst thankfully my parents are in great health and I'll always be their boy, I feel as though I've almost transitioned into this space where I'm not just their kid anymore, but I'm their friend. And they can lean on me when they need it. And I can lean on them. And that's actually a really, for me, it's it's a really nice feeling go, These two people who've done so much for me, now I get to be more than just a child to them. I get to be like their shoulder to cry on or, or their person to lean on or someone to confide in or ask questions. And so I'd be interested to hear for you what that experience has been like coming back to a very different dynamic with your parents. And I know like for the audience sake, you know, we met through your work producing a podcast that speaks to people who have been challenged within their own lives, you know? And, and so there's obviously a bunch of stuff you're doing, and I know there's a lot of stuff you're doing in that health and charity space. So just be interested to hear about this experience. I've just thrown about a million questions at you, but <laughs> I'm going to let you just talk freely now.
1: Great, 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 great. Um, I should have been taking notes. No, um, my, it has been the greatest like privilege and honor to become friends with my parents. I think to, not everyone is afforded that um, luxury or experience or relationship. And I feel so lucky that um, we have such a close bond where now it's not just, well, we're blood related. So we have to be in each other's lives. It's like we actively choose to spend time together. And I like being around them. I like being a part of their life. And it's um, such a Yeah, like I said, a privilege. And so for them to have both been dealt, you know, um, cards we wish that they hadn't. Um, Dad lives with Parkinson's and mum lives with MS. So they're both these um, degenerative disorders. My heart breaks for them. um, And I wish I could do something about it. But the best thing I can do is to be there. And like you said, like be their friend. And um, I guess it's a bit of an identity shift for everybody to the people that have spent their whole life caring for me now i have the um, opportunity to i guess pay them back in a little bit of a way and start to help them out and care for them um as as they require more of that but um yeah it certainly is hard to watch people um go through go through a challenge and have their life um be forever changed and sort of just um continue on that trajectory um but my way of i guess coping is to try and dive into that like how can i support them i can't change their um physical symptoms or their diagnosis but i can support the you know the charities that are doing the work to um find a cure uh those kind of like more practical things so i think yeah you feel pretty hopeless and helpless uh, and wanting to support people so trying to find those like practical tangible things that that um that yeah, help and just be with them and use the time while we can.
0: Yeah, most definitely. It's interesting. It's a question I'm going to ask you here, but I want to give you some context to it first. I've recently been thinking a lot about parenthood because I want to be a parent myself. And I would love that to be in the next couple of years. I think we're probably like two to three years away from, you know, being able to bring kids into the world. It's something I'm really excited for because I grew up in a beautiful family and the one thing i've known i always wanted to be was to be a dad a parent but i think that one thing that one thing that will definitely have to change and one thing that will be challenged when that time comes is i'm maybe a little bit selfish right now <laughs> i would like to think that i'm i'm a good partner that i'm a good friend that i'm a good son but there's a lot of um, personal desire that i have And I put a lot of time and effort into seeing those things through, which I think there's a season for everything, right? Like this is the season where I'm trying to set up my life and create something that's financially sustainable and fruitful so that when I bring kids into the world, I can be a present dad and I can be a dad who's happy and comes home and has a job that, you know, makes him very fulfilled. And I think that's important, but I often think, oh, it's going to be an adjustment when those little kiddies come along. For you, what's challenged you about this new role as someone who has to care for but also support your family?
1: I think the biggest, like, the time I, I would quit everything and just be with them if that's what they needed. Like, they're my number one priority, so I guess, like, that compromise, and I'm in a point in my life, like, I'm not in a relationship, I don't have children, so at this point in my life, I... I'm fortunate that the time sacrifices aren't that pending. Whereas like my brother, he has a wife and a child and it's not as easy for him to get away because he needs to, um, his time is needed elsewhere. So um, in a way, again, it's like, it's a privilege to be able to have the flexibility to be at appointments or um, do whatever I need to do for mom and dad. But the challenge is just um, watching people you care about having a tough time and, you um, being able to support them when they need it. And um, I guess, take care of yourself too, because there are days that mum and they're both like, I cannot state how positive they are. They, you know, move into every single day, just like tr- aiming for the best and doing all of the work they can to make the most of their situation. But they still have days where it's frustrating for them, right? And so I guess it's, the challenge is, seeing that and um, watching them struggle and then yeah how do you take care of yourself so that you can be that support for them but I guess not take on too much of that in a way that then that's a real heaviness because I think carers fatigue is something that isn't often talked about but is a very real thing because again you can feel ashamed that you you're struggling with someone else's struggle so I think it's a very important thing on a broader scale to acknowledge that like if you are caring for someone it's okay to take care of yourself in that role too
0: does it make you feel like, you know, you spoke to, you have the time mm-hmm. and you don't have a relationship with kids at the moment. Does it make you feel as though you can't have those things at this stage?
1: Um, It it doesn't, but I wonder if um I would make more space for stuff like that if, say, that wasn't going on or career was slightly different. Like, I think sometimes those kind of things take up so much of my life and I feel very fulfilled and even like purposeful like I get that fulfillment and purpose out of my job but I do also get it out of being able to take care of mom and dad like that gives me a great sense of joy to be of service to someone Um, but yeah you probably wonder like maybe if those things weren't the way they were that would would I be more actively pursuing Like a relationship or something like that, because I genuinely like feel like I don't care or have the time to do that. But I know inside, like I would love to have a partner. I think I would be a great teammate. But yeah, I just can't seem to find, I guess, the um way to prioritize that in the in the way that my life is right now.
0: I would love to see that for you, and and not that I think. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting, right? Because it's almost as though the last five years there has been this push towards, like. Men say that they don't need women. Women say that they don't need men. People say they don't need partners, that they can be happy alone. And I think all those things are true, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't want it or that it's not nice, you know, because I was, I was living a great life and there were plenty of good things about my life before I met Soph, but God, it changed my life forever. <laughs> you know, and I think yeah. everyone deserves to experience that. Everyone deserves to have someone in their corner who loves them unconditionally and wants to be there for them through the challenges and to support them. And I identify just having spoken to you over the course of this app. And like, I can tell that you have such a good heart. And I think that people with good hearts deserve to be able to give that love to other people who can give it back and, you know, create a partnership with them. So I definitely think it's something that I love to hear that you're still open to it. I think you should definitely make time for it.
1: Thank you. It's very nice of you to say I have a good heart. I would say I'm a very good actor. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think it, you do raise an interesting point because I think I've been gr- brought up in this time where um, thankfully I'm very encouraged to be like a strong, independent woman, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And that career is allowed to be a focus. I'm um, fortunate enough that I've not really had, I haven't lived in a time where like a woman couldn't have a career and that be a big part of her life. So In that way, I'm so fortunate, but it almost maybe like what you're alluding to like can lean a bit too far the other way that then you're like well I shouldn't need it and I shouldn't want it, I should be able to do everything myself. And I think I've gotten to a point where I know I don't need someone and I think I needed to know that that's a really important distinction for me that I can be really independent and can do everything myself. So while I don't need that person, it's still okay to want someone and to want to add an additional thing that doesn't fill a void or a hole that's missing, but it simply like adds on top and elevates. So I think getting to that point is the important part, but for sure, I felt like I shouldn't want that um, because you sort of encouraged to be like, no, like, you know, all the single ladies, independent woman stuff.
0: Well, I love, I love what you said there. I couldn't agree with it more. And I, I think about this all the time because I have a very good feeling that I'm going to be a girl dad. I feel as though life is going to give me a bunch of little daughters that I'm going to have to stress about and freak out about. And I think, what am I going to want to teach them so that when they get to a point in which they're out in the world and potentially creating relationships that they know, and my thing would be that competency breeds confidence. And if you feel as though you're competent and don't need someone to support you. And I think this would go for guys as well. If you feel as though, because there's plenty of guys who find a partner that maybe fills the void that mum used to fill, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and we hear about, you know, daddy issues or mummy issues in relationships all the time. But I think if you can have competency and know that independently, you know how to go about your business and you are secure and confident in doing life individually, it, that means that you find a partner who's a healthy partner for you because they're not filling a void, but they're adding to your life. You know, they. Oh, I remember this yeah. beautiful quote from Big Sean and his partner, Gene Ico. And Gene Ico said to him, like they've been together, that they were doing like this live video back and forth. And she said, I don't need you to complete me. I need you to compliment me. And I thought, oh, how beautifully said. That's yeah, it right there.
1: I love that so much. Yeah, two people living like independent, fulfilled lives that choose to come together. Like chef's kiss, that's what you're after.
0: 100%. Hey, mm-hmm. we've reached a an exciting point of the podcast, the point of the podcast in which I've not done this for a while, um, but I'm bringing back what I would like to call five rapid questions, but I think because of my ability to ramble, we're going to call them five <laughs> moderately rapid questions. <laughs>
1: I think that's catchier anyway. (laughs) It's very catchy.
0: So I'm going to make sure that these questions are in front of me because it's been a little while. In fact, I've never asked these ones before. They're new questions.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for debuting them on me.
0: My absolute pleasure. Are you ready to roll?
1: Probably not, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: the attitude. Is there a personal challenge that you wish you'd addressed earlier in your life?
1: Um. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, I wish I'd gone to therapy earlier for sure. It took me about nine years from the time someone first said I should go and see a psychologist to when I actually did. So we could have probably, you know, really, um, sped up the process there if I'd gone nine years earlier.
0: What was the reluctancy to go to therapy at that point in time?
1: Um, I mean, probably you know being young and thinking i didn't need it and it being someone telling you you have to go rather than when i ended up going it was at a point where like my life was unmanageable and i was like i want to change so it was the difference between someone telling me i needed to change versus me truly believing it so i don't think i could have gone any earlier uh, unfortunately because it had to come to the point where I knew that was what I needed to do. Uh, but boy, it would have been, it would have been great if I'd known that.
0: (laughs) Mm, I love that one. I think it's a really important one. Um, how do you, we've spoken about this in some form today, but how do you personally define success? Uh,
1: success to me is just like being the happiest and healthiest version of yourself and being of service to others. Um, and having a, a purpose that fulfills you. I think, I know that's like four or five kind of things, but I kind of see it as a, um, I visualize a pizza and they're being like the slices. And so, you know, there's a slice for um, happiness, a slice for health, a slice for career, a slice for creativity, a slice for being of service. So it's not one thing, but there's like, I guess like, you know, eight to 10 key things that to me define success. And that sort of takes the pressure off one thing being everything too. So it means that like, one of those things can slip a little bit, but you've still got these other pillars that mean your life is still of meaning and okay. Whereas you know, in the the past success was a career thing or a relationship or this. And so if one of those has a weaker moment, you're in trouble. So I think it's it's, um, still key important things, but there's a few of them rather than just one.
0: I think that's an incredible answer. I love that. And I think that'd be a great lesson for a lot of people that your life is bigger than one thing.
1: Yeah, the whole pizza, baby, just not one slice.
0: (laughs) And we're all about eating whole pizzas. So (laughs) question number three, what is the greatest lesson that failure has afforded you?
1: The greatest lesson that failure has afforded you. Um, Man, I wish I'd had time to think about like a really thoughtful answer for this. Cause I think, you know, in 24 hours, I'm going to be like, why didn't I say this? (laughs) Um, I mean, it i guess what comes to mind now is like it teaches you resilience and it teaches you um i guess like gratitude for it when it works if things are too easy you maybe don't um appreciate it the way you could
0: beautiful lesson i think there's something to be said in that for all of us that would be completely relatable
1: okay great well done (laughs) i
0: don't think you needed time you nailed it
1: I'll email you what I really want to say and you can um, AI my voice in.
0: (laughs) Okay. I like it. The fourth question here, I've got to give a shout out to Soph because this was a question that Soph suggested. And I really like it. It's actually my my favorite of the five. If you were writing a book about your life, what chapter changed the direction of your life and what would the title of that chapter be?
1: Good grief. Um, Great question, Soph. We love this. Um, Boy, oh boy, I guess the chapter would be when I let's just say when I stopped diving because I guess that ended my athletic life and um, was the genesis of my creative life. Um, And hmm, what's like a pun on like uh, wet, you know, being pool based, you know, like maybe it's like drying out or. Uh, stepping. No, that's bad too. Uh, this is why I'm not a writer, everybody. <laughs> I don't know what the chapter would be. Chapter four, let's say a number.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it. And to be fair, it's almost like you never got out of the pool because you dove straight into life as a mermaid.
1: Yes. Which again is um, something that we could talk about for hours, how deeply waterlogged <laughs> my life has been and why I'm a bad Australian now. Cause like I hate going to the beach, hate being in a pool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we all have our moments. The fifth question I want to ask you is our final question and it speaks to somewhat the theme of the show. As I would like to think you know by now and the audience that the name of the show is a lot to talk about, but what's something you find particularly hard to talk about?
1: I... I find it really hard to talk about um, disordered eating. It's something that's, it just seems wild to bring it up at this time of the podcast, Uh, but it's something that's been a part of my life for a very long time. And I think we've come a long way with how we talk about mental illness and um, that sort of space. But I think there's still a lot of stigma and taboo around um eating disorders and a lack of understanding um and yeah i i still um i wish i found it easier to talk about and i'm trying to be better at talking about it um but yeah i think that's something that still needs more uh education so that there is less shame and guilt for the people living through it
0: can i ask a little question on that and just extend this a bit because i think it's a really interesting point that would be helpful for a lot of people uh-huh you know it seems as though you're alluding to your own experience at some point with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. What was it that you think was the, how would you identify the beginning of your first challenges with this?
1: Um, I mean, I ended up in hospital and um, I get like a trigger warning for anyone that is living through something like this. You sort of do have to talk about body and weight um, and hospitalization. And I know that can be triggering for um, people, but Uh, I guess that was, I truly had no idea or understanding of the mental side of it, but just physically I was severely underweight and very unwell, um, and had, you know, heart and kidney failure at that point in time. Um, So that was really how naive I was to it and my family was to it, uh, that it was when it was physically that bad, we realised there was an issue. I've since come to learn obviously so much about it and what that illness was trying to do for me. Um, You know, it's a, a way to control something in a space that felt uncontrollable and a way to navigate feelings or emotions that I didn't have a better coping mechanism at the time, um, you know, it's a numbing thing, just like how people can use alcohol, drugs, sex, or things like that to um, change the way they're feeling. It works in that same capacity, but yeah, in when it first sort of uh, popped up into our lives, it wasn't something that any of us had an awareness of. So it was, yeah, until it physio- physically became really bad um, that we realized that there was even something going on.
0: Yeah, once again, tell me if I'm prodding too far here because I don't want to make this personally challenging for you, but you know, no, no, you spoke about it being a way of controlling something in a very uncontrollable space. What mm-hmm. was the pain that you were trying to almost escape or, you know, what was like the catalyst for that struggle?
1: Well, I think like this was so around the end of my diving career time. And I think The simple answer is I hated diving and I didn't know how to get out of it. So I think it was my body's way of taking that um, decision out of my hands. I was so sick that I had to quit. And then therefore I could like start on this new trajectory. But I think, you know, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. It's basically, um, yeah, when the external world maybe feels out of control, that's my way of like, that's one thing I can lock into. Um, That's my way of um, finding things that make sense.
0: It's really interesting, this idea, because I've I've heard a lot of athletes speak about this, almost as though it's not their decision to make to leave a sport or to step away from something that you're good at or elite at. Why did you feel like you couldn't step away?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, hmm. I think there's a lot of identity held up in it. And again, around that like 14, 15 age, that's something you're trying to figure out. Um, And I was known as a diver i was at a really good school because i had a diving scholarship so i think i didn't know um what my life would be without that which again feels dramatic as a 31 year old to say that but at that time you're like well this is what makes me me or maybe makes me remarkable or special um and i didn't know what that would look like if diving wasn't in the picture also you have this high performance Um, like perfectionistic dedicated mentality so I think there's that concern of like where does that go if I don't have my sport I don't know like where to sort of channel that energy and unfortunately like that's where the eating disorder comes in so it's like well my driven perfectionistic brain can now put that onto food or exercise and all of a sudden like I've got something that's filling in that void that was diving so you can see like it's a perfect storm for it to have happened
0: yeah I think it's such a good point you know I in, I guess I introduced you at the start of the show as a triple threat and spoke about much of your identity being that of what people would know you for but mm-hmm. it's a it's a very good reminder and maybe a great reminder for me that we are bigger than our careers and bigger than what we do and that our identity is something we get to choose it is essentially it's it's about more than what we do on paper and how we're seen on the surface And I think, you know, after speaking to you throughout the course of the last hour or so, like I said, I think the thing that stands out the most is the good heart, the desire to help people, you know, that goodness in you. And it's a great reminder to not pigeonhole ourselves.
1: And also that your identity can be flexible and it can be multifaceted too. So it can change over time, but also it can contain a bunch of stuff. Like I think, maybe uh, it's helpful as someone that like is a comedian and I like to think of myself as like a funny light silly person but I also have like that other part of me but neither one of those define me and I think my reluctance in the past to speak about disordered eating is because people then think you're one thing right whereas I'm like no 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 I can be like the person I am on stage and I can be the supporter to my family and I can still have those things that have been a part of my life in the past, like no, neither one of those things is my entire identity, I guess is my point that like, yeah, you can change it, but you can also have different parts of it.
0: Well, I tell you what, it feels like we're leaving everyone on a firecracker because that was very <laughs> meaningful. And, you know, I feel very privileged that you you wanted to share and open up there, but thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's been brilliant to speak to you. And for me, the joy, is always in speaking to someone that I think I know, but I don't really know. (laughs) You know, so much comes to the surface. So thanks for your time, Amy.
1: No, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: I'll make sure that everyone can find links to what you're doing, where to find you, where to chat to you, where to keep up with your life in the show notes to everyone who tuned into the app. Thank you so much and we'll see you again. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I wanna pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history and storytelling, and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.